Welcome to the Shoot Hunt Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ryan Avery. Ryan Avery. And my color commentator today is Jake Mushady. <laughs> Are you ready? I've been ready since 9 a.m., sir. How fat is your ass today? I knew that was coming, and, I, and I, I'm embarrassed. You know, because you, you never want to say it can never happen. I mean, you know, the chances of getting violently murdered by a bunny are low, <laughs> but, but never zero. We're bringing up some straight bullshit. Dude, if it ain't hunting clothes, my wife buys it for me. But your, your wife bought that color for you? I just said, give me some Crocs. She's just way too comfortable with your gayness then. Gosh, I got really long tongue. <laughs> Good lord. I know that uh, Seth will be proud. I finally broke down and bought a 6.5 Creed Morpher NRL Hunter. Nice. Shoot the production. That's what we like to hear. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Shoot the production. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to uh, go the lighter, heavy route. I just bought a production Seiko S20 and I went into the man bun territory. (laughs) <laughs> what 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 is your opinion actually Jaden knowing as much as you do about the 65 Creedmoor and his development you know the the opinions and the nicknames that that, that cartridge has developed Well I I figure you don't get scrutinized until you're successful so it must have done something right to get the amount of hate that it does Nice Yes I I firmly believe you can tell me I'm wrong or right it revolves around recoil people shoot it cuz it's a mildly shooting recoiling rifle and it also helps that it's you know has good components but i think the recoil thing people coming from magnums to pick up a 6.5 creedmoor and then bam they can shoot it a lot of has to do with the recoil yeah and in the, in the early days of the creedmoor you know in the era that it was introduced kind of that early 2000s uh time frame pre-2010 you know, it was essentially compared to a 300 win mag as you know you get the same or better trajectory with barely any recoil and that really kind of you know in, in one statement told people what it was capable of back then you know 300 wind mag isn't as relevant today as it was back in you know, 2007 2008 time frame on the 6.5 creedmoor is that still the number one cartridge you guys are producing it's I'm right sure up there at the top so. yeah you know uh our number one skew i think is nine millimeter as far as sales volume goes but it's uh yeah i think it's the number one rifle skew that we make Wow. To this day. Is there anybody even close competitive wise? Six Creedmoor, six five PRC, anything even close to it? Uh, I bet two two threes up there quite a bit, oh, three oh eight. Exactly. You know, just some of those staples. Uh, and and get this one, a four fifty Bushmaster is actually uh usually in our top five as far as volume goes of right rifle cartridges sold every year. Is that for like short range whitetail guys or what's what's driving that? Yeah. I think it's everybody east of Nebraska where they're where they're useful. Uh, you know where there's met, uh, restrictions for shouldered cartridges, and uh, you know Idaho or not Idaho, Ohio, excuse me, Indiana, Iowa, places like that. A lot of hunters, a lot of deer, and I think that's why it's popular. Gotcha. I would have never have thunked it. <laughs> I wouldn't have either. With my history with the cartridge, I certainly would not have would not have guessed that. I imagine the seven PRC is spiking right now. If I was to guess. Yeah. Yeah. That machine hasn't shut off or machines rather that, you know, Jaden's out there with production every day and 
Jaden, I mean, we're running that thing literally around the clock since last year. Yeah, yeah, it goes nonstop. Well, for those that don't know, we have the Hornaday guys on the podcast today. We have Seth Swerzik. Swerzik, is that right, Seth? Yep, that'll do. And Jaden Quinlan. Um, you guys have started kind of a, I wouldn't say a shitstorm, but a lot of conversation around the uh, your uh, gr- your groups are too small podcast. On from my perspective, on Rockslide, it's the one that keeps getting brought up over and over and over again. And uh, we have a guy that I'm pretty sure you guys know too that's talked to you that for the last five years he's been on Rockslide preaching it, and uh, didn't get a lot of traction. Didn't get a lot of traction, and then you guys come out with it, and Brian Litz had had some stuff on it, and all of a sudden, boom! It is the hot button on Rockslide. So getting into the huh. the the 10 shot group, your groups are too small. Has this, and I, I know that Jake has some questions to follow up on this, but has this always been a thing at Hornaday or is this lately? Cause obviously the, the three shot group mentality from media kind of drives the, the zeroing process. How long has this 10 shot, 20 shot, 30 shot group process been a SOP at Hornaday? Um, not forever. No, probably probably around the 2018 time frame is when we really started to dig into it. Um, you know, a lot of it came from the, the competitive sports where you're shooting really high volumes. You know, you look at the legacy competitive long-range sports, uh, bench rest, F-class, stuff like that. Yeah, you're, you know, might be shooting 10, 20 shots for record on a string, but but when you look at the field style shooting matches like the PRS or the NRL or the outlaw matches or anything like that, you know, you're shooting 200 plus rounds usually over a two day match on a weekend. And that's a really high number in comparison to say you go shoot a bench rest match and you shoot a couple of relays of 10 shots or an F class match, you know, a couple of relays. You're, you're not approaching those really high sample sizes. And generally those, those high volumes have never been paired with precision disciplines, right? It's always Mm -hmm. just been a couple shots. And so that's really what spurred us to start looking into it further is, well, what happens if instead of shooting, you know, a match of 200 rounds at all the different ranges associated that you're going to engage during a match, what if we just see what happens if you shot all 200 of those rounds at a hundred or so, you know, what, what kind of differences would we see if we did that versus this traditional method of a three or a five or, you know, whatever method you prescribe to based on how you were brought up, what you've read or, or, you know, all these different methods of adopting uh, that different information that's out there. You know, what happens if we just do it and see what happens. And so we started doing that testing. I remember in 2018, Seth, you can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong there, but that's the, the first First time I shot a 50 shot group was in 2018. Yeah, I think that's about right because I was still working with you in ballistics at the time. And uh, a lot of our large sample size uh, testing and record keeping really aligned with the start of one of our uh, engineers, Miles Neville. Uh, mm-hmm. Miles got here. He's uh, a competitive guy, he's a, a very savvy rifleman. Um, and he's very, very smart. He's a degree mechanical engineer, but he's just a, a competent guy and he understands statistics quite well. And he was, yeah, looking at larger sample size. Plus his whole life 
as an adult has been long range precision shooting and he uh, doesn't have a wife or children. And so he gets to do all of this testing and he would stay after work. He'd be down in the lab till 6.30, 7.30 at night shooting 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 shot groups, uh, shooting 100 shot composites, shooting 500 shot, com shot composites. And he would do this all in his free time. He'd come in on the weekends and it really aligned with what Jaden was doing in 2018. Uh, like I said, it really all just kind of happened right around that time frame. Hmm. Interesting. Where this is a question actually from Rockside, but it's also on my list. Where to pivot away from the ten shot group? Where did the three shot group catch on? If you look at like some of the old history book, I think it's like the Ballard shooting where they would shoot thirty, fifty, hundred shot groups. Is it is it gun purely gun riders? Where where I guess where did that come from? Do you guys know? I don't know of a single source for it, but. You know, it's the the large sample size stuff did not. That's nothing revolutionary that we you know like stumbled upon. The mm -hmm. the government, the Department of Defense, has done large sample size testing for decades and decades and decades. They you know they understand that well before it's implemented publicly by us. But to to answer your three shot question, I have to assume that it's a balance of cost and knowledge and you know, dot, 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 all the way down the line that, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's pretty, if we, if we exit shooting and we go into any other realm, a sample size of three gets scoffed at, right? Like if you say, you know, back to the old, like high school statistics, the uh, analogy of trying to sample the height of the population. Well, nobody's going to say, well, yeah, if I measure the height of three people, I now have a representation of the height of the population. Like everybody looks at that and it's like, yeah, that's stupid. You need more measurements. People vary in height too much. But as soon as we enter the, the shooting realm, I I personally think that ego just takes over. Um, you know, the, the, the chances of getting a favorable result on a three-shot group are way higher. You know, your groups are going to be smaller if you shoot three shot groups. You have the chance of getting a smaller group because the more you shoot, the bigger your group will become naturally. And so there's there's probably some of that. You know, we don't want to we don't want to know how bad it is. We want to know how good it is because that's a positive thing. It makes us feel good. It tells us what we want to know. You know, um, it's it's looking at how bad you are and where your failures are that actually gives you capability and not not just prop up your your bias towards yeah. what you want to happen. Yeah. I think uh, I would agree with that. And I think in modern times you have the time, you have the the money of more shots. And then I, like I said, in modern times, you know, to, to take a, you know, a, a joke out of the six, five Creekmore book, you have the guy in the man bun that gets his mocha choca, whatever drink and picks up a Creekmore. <laughs> he goes out to the range and he gets a quick three shot zero and you're in a, you're in a hurry because you want to stretch the legs. Let me get this thing here really quick. I'll just shoot three shots, get it close at a hundred. Then I want to go five, six, seven, 800 yards, thousand yards. Uh, I feel like there's everything Jaden said, plus, you know, with long range shooting over the last decade becoming so much more easy to get into and so much more precise and so much, you know, free access to ballistic calculators and really good range finders and scopes that track. Well, everybody gets in a hurry, not everybody, but a lot of people get in a hurry to get out to the long range. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I think that has something to do with it as well, or how it's been propagated anyway. 
my thought it's my thought process wrong and i think that you know kind of growing up as a kid i'm 46 years old and 400 yards on growing up with my old 270 was a long shot and now we've we've moved to you know 400 yards is you know all things being equal is relatively an easy shot but now we're shooting six eight a thousand yards and people are shooting that at animals so i don't think i think the natural next step is more data means more hits am i wrong on that thought Absolutely. process Gotcha. Uh, I think that's exactly where we're at is, you know, shoot a little bit more at the beginning so you can shoot less trying to chase your tail and hit what you're aiming at. Cause ultimately that's what makes shooting fun. So if you look at like the bench press bench rest perspective on it is what they're doing with ladder tests and nodes and, and, and lots of, lots of hunters are doing ladder tests and nodes is all that shit just irrelevant. I don't know if you could make a blanket statement that it's all irrelevant, but I don't think you can claim that it's 100% relevant either. Um, it, it's certainly dependent on the the specific components you have. You know, we can only, uh, we, we made so many people mad when we put those podcasts out, but really <laughs> all we said was, hey, we did a bunch of testing and here's what happened. We weren't, we weren't saying, we weren't making claim that we know you know, all this stuff in particular, but we, we went up against the dogmatic approaches and tested them repeatedly and they fell apart and we just reported on it. Um, I, in, in my, my own experience in pursuing and learning ballistics and trying to, to remove myself from that dogmatic knowledge that I came from, which all of us do, right? When you're a kid and you're handed a rifle, you do what somebody tells you that knows what they're doing. And you generally don't really question it. You just do it. And if you're successful, you keep doing that. And it reiterates to you that it's correct because you're successful in doing it. That correlation doesn't necessarily tie back to the causation of what's actually ending, you know, causing that result to occur. And what we've really started to pursue around here is that causation and not the correlation. What are the driving mechanisms that cause this or that to occur? And when you really start diving into those things, these dogmatic methods begin to fall apart most of the time. Now, is there cases where a node exists and somebody has found the proper node? Yeah, I'm sure there has been, you know, uh, to make absolute statements, I think is foolish, but um, I would say in my experience that the majority of the methods used by shooters, reloaders, and uh, Miles has done a great job describing it as a, as a confirmation bias funnel. You never go back and test the bad ones to see if they're actually bad repeatedly. <laughs> you take the one good result you had, and then you run with that thinking that it's the good result. But to, to, to fully flesh that out, you need to go back and test the bad ones and see, do they, are they consistently bad or were they bad the one time you sampled them? And we see a lot of people get lost in that with the ladder tests and all these different methods that are, that are there. And the other issue I take with them is, is uh, show me how it works. Uh, explain to me the, the mechanisms that cause that test to function and be manipulatable and controllable the way it is. And I've yet to see the data or receive the answer to that. Hmm. Anything to add to that, Jake? Was on yours. Okay. All right, fair enough. Uh, we have an intern. Does that, does that answer that question? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It was oh. very good, actually. Okay. No, I. I wanted to add yeah. one thing that one point that Miles is also quick to bring up is that he's done this testing. 
again, and, and Jaden and Jacob, our other ballistician, have done this testing in large sample in a controlled environment in the tunnel. And largely what he's done is 6.5 Creedmoor, 6 Arc, some of the PRC cartridges. So you're looking at chamber design and throat geometry that produces good accuracy. You know, we haven't done this test, say, in a 300 wind mag, which a standard SAMI throat dimension on 300 wind mag is pretty atrocious by today's standards. So in the instances that we've tested this and documented this, it has been with what we would call properly designed uh, chambers and throat dimensions. Interesting. Do you guys, I don't even know if you guys test this. So do you guys, do you guys test like production rifles, like production rifle barrels at all or against like custom rifles? Are you just using it, you know, doing all these tests in the rail gun? Is there any like production rifles that are being tested for groups from Hornady? Absolutely. Yeah. The whole, the whole spectrum is covered from the, the, you know, the, our accuracy test uh, fixture, which you could probably describe as a rail gun all the way to the most budget rifle you can buy um, at your local sporting goods store. Yeah. We, we use them all. We have to understand what the product does across the whole spectrum of quality, you know, in those like 10, 20 shot, 30, whatever group you want to pull out of their shot group. Is there a vast difference between like, and I don't want to call it about, say like a Tika or Browning versus a Benchmark or Bartline or you name the custom barrel. Is there a bigger difference? Is it 0.5? Is it one minute? Is there a difference? I would say that the lower quality, it's really the barrel that we're mm -hmm. talking about. Correct. Um, the, the barrel is the critical piece there. Uh, let's say the budget quality barrels. We've seen a budget quality barrel shoot on par with the highest quality match barrels, but that's usually the exception. So you see more spread in the performance. You know, you can have really, really good results and you can have really, really bad results with the budget options. When you get into the, you know, more premier products, the, the higher end match barrels that, that we're all familiar with using for mm -hmm. shooting matches and stuff, it, it starts to cut the extremes down and the performance barrel to barrel to barrel from that manufacturer is very consistent. And it obviously errs towards the positive side, right? You get good results when you use those high quality components. Um, that that's more of what we observe, but uh, you know, to to frame it in a different way, could you have a budget barrel that outshoots a, the highest end barrel? You could, yes. But on um, but on average, you're not seeing exception. that. Correct. Okay. When you guys are developing factory loads and you're trying to cover that wide spectrum of not only individual barrels being component picky, but the least quality barrel to the highest quality button rifle, cut rifled, and you're trying to develop one load for a new 7PRC 180 ELDM, for example, what what process are you using to try and cover that spectrum of rifles with one load? Good question. Well, the, so we, we first select the components for the load, right? I mean, the cartridge case is kind of fixed. Uh, the propellant, you have options there. Um, and then usually the projectile is fixed, right? Like we're going to come out with a 180 grain ELD match bullet load. So you're... you're your point that you can manipulate is the propellant itself. Uh, when you look at propellant, you need to look at things like, is it going to produce the velocity that's intended or, or needed for the per performance of this load? What is the temperature sensitivity like? What are the case fill ratios like? Uh, what is the availability and the cost of the propellant? It, is that all in alignment with the end goal of the product? Generally, what you'll find is there's a couple different propellants that you can check the box yes, box yes on all those different categories. 
and then it comes down to just testing, uh, essentially loading up samples of each of those different propellants and testing them through as many different circumstances as possible. And, and whoever the winner is, is what gets picked. So once you have those couple of powders selected, you are doing powder charge weight testing at that point. Yeah, so not pressure so much, velocity. Yeah, not so much in in think of it think of being, thinking of it as like a iterative test. Like I'm going to do a you know like a ladder test, right? I'm going to do a sample at you know 70 grains and then a sample at 70.2 and stuff like that. No, um, because your your changes lot to lot propellant wise, case lot to case lot. Um, those are going to eclipse any of those specific charge weight identifications that you find. Um, you're you're holding more a standard of pressure and velocity, like Seth mentioned. So really, once so basically, when you were building the seven PRC one eighty ELDM factory load, if it went as you described, you already have a targeted velocity and pressure. You have two powder choices, so you have two different loads that you can test each of which has That's a different correct. powder entirely. And knowing yes. what we know, all four of us on the phone here about developing loads and the way that barrels can be picky, even with a you know a slightly different charge or even a different powder, different brass, different so on. You know, as a Hornady ballistician who is set with the brass that you can choose, you're set with the bullet you can choose, and I'm sure that there's, you're either making your own primers or you have one or two primer choices. It seems like, did it be nearly impossible to fall on a perfect load only seeking out you know a specific velocity and pressure at that point it's just you're, you're so limited on your choices it just seems unlikely that you'll arrive at the best load for the widest variety of rifles with the specific components you have to choose from well that's the the you had a key statement there um across you know a wide spectrum of rifles is the key there um is it going to be optimum in a given rifle, only if we know what you're using, right? But the fact that we don't know what rifle you're going to shoot that out of means that we need to select the load option that is the most robust across the, the whole spectrum of rifles and uh, technically barrels. Yeah, no. but like you like you said, um, you're, you're basically, you're flipping a coin. You, you had two choices of load to develop that load for the 7PRC. You had mm -hmm. two different choices, you know, to hit your intended velocity. So you basically shoot one of two choices through 15 different rifles and whichever one shoots better, that's the one you go with. It just seems, it right. seems extremely difficult to me, you know, coming from the custom rifle side and loading ammo with every choice of brass and every choice of bullet and every choice of powder and primer, you know, and even how difficult that can be just to, I guess I, I guess I don't envy you as a, as a load developer and ballistician at Hornady with, with the minimum choices, I guess, just because I think it'd be yes. incredibly difficult job. I would say yeah. to jump in there, Jaden, about the seven PRC specifically, because that's the one I have significant experience with anyway. Uh, and then on a broader scale, it's very easy actually uh, to, to do that. And I say very easy one, because you're limited. So it's easy because you don't have a ton of options, but two, that's where we rely on the chamber dimensions for accuracy. That's why the Creedmoors all shoot well and the PRCs generally all shoot well with factory ammo is that throat geometry that is not a trade secret. Um, good throat geometry hands the bullet off straight into the rifling and avoiding principal axis tilt is incredibly important. And 
it becomes less susceptible to accuracy problems from powder to powder to powder. Mm. And when we're looking for accuracy, we generally know that single-based extruded powders are going to be the most accurate generally. And some double-based extruded powders are going to be right up there as well. So it makes it pretty easy. When you talk about doing this uh, same selection for something like, again, a 300 wind mag where the chamber dimensions are, are really set up poorly for overall accuracy, um, it might be a little more difficult, but in doing the PRC specifically, we really just rely on the consensus concentricity of the projectiles, because uh, that a lot of a lot of accuracy is a result of just a perfectly true bullet, and then the fact that the chamber designs are lending themselves well to general accuracy. Yeah, you're getting after those more rounded bullets that are going to line themselves easier when they got to jump, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else on that? Oh, go ahead. All right. We got a the shoot to hunt uh, little camp here has a, we have a debated topic between me and Jake. So I was wondering if you guys could help weigh Are in. Are you going to try and explain the cold at hot zero? No, no. It's a simple, simple. Because if this is what it is, I'll explain no, it. No, no, no. I'm going to explain it. If you guys don't understand <laughs> it, then Jake can explain his nonsense. Okay. Oh, gosh. It's you guys already talked about it. So I already, I already know I'm going to win, but I just want to preface it with I'm probably going to win. So. Okay, you have a ten shot cold bore zero. Explain explain cold bore. You shoot one shot a day for ten days in a row. Versus, uh, we call it ten hot shots. Basically, you're just going to shoot ten right in a row. Will the center of that cone, the center of the zero, center of the cone, move? Will there be a difference between those two groups? Did I explain that well enough for you, Jake? No. Okay, go. Let, let's I'm gonna, hear Jake's. I'm gonna, I'm gonna simplify it. Okay, simplify it for okay. me. All right, 10, 10 single cold bore shots. Yep. Absolute cold bore. Ten shots fired in a row, mm-hmm. reasonably. Barrel heats up. We're looking for the center of the hot zero, the hot ten shot zero, and the center of the cold how, shot zero. How the fuck was that simpler? <laughs> now we all agree that these will both fall within the cone of fire that the barrel can produce. Correct. The point being is as a hunter, we don't shoot 10 shots in a row. We shoot cold bore shots. <laughs> I've seen it happen. Hold on. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Oh boy. That gets okay. Faster. So, so I and Ryan generally, you know, let's say two shots, three shots max, but usually it's one shot. Basically because the barrel heats up, metals expand bore diameter increases all that good stuff you are going to have some there has to be some inherent variance let them say it the center of the cone will it change between those No, because when you say cone it can be confusing because we both know there's a there's a 30 shot cone that the barrel is going to produce and we both know that both of those zeros will be within that 30 shot cone but specifically talking about 10 cold bore shots yes 10 hot shots in a row the center center of each of those yes of that cone will be the same there is a more technical term i think you guys were talking about like no no no, they were saying like mean radius and things like this we're just keeping it simple center of a cold bore 10 shot zero and the center of a hot 10 shot correct my camp is it won't change jake's says it will even if it's a click difference there will be some difference in there well let's hear it from the guys that shoot bullets every day what do you think jaden um, 
just on the just on the sample size of 10 uh depending on the raw dispersion level of the rifle or that cone of fire right the smaller that cone is the more accurately or, or precise the gun shoots um the less variability you'll have 10 shot to 10 shot to 10 shot regardless if it's one at a time cold board or you're it's all in a string so That's what I'm saying. We're, we're, we're agreeing that the two zeros would be within the cone of any given barrel and let's say that yeah, let's say so the 30 gonna, shot cone is two inches max yeah, so I'm going to change it to a 30 shot because we know that's statistically valid. So let's say I do a 30 shot of the cold bores, and let's say I do three 10 shot groups uh, to, to get to the sample size of 30, right? Would I expect the mean point of impact or the center uh, of those to be different between the two? Yes and no. It totally depends <laughs> on the barrel. I've seen it happen, and I've seen it not happen. It completely depends on that. He even moved that up system. to a 30. The shot. only way to know it is to test it. And I've yeah, so talk, I, so talking about with my so, so what he's doing, he's, he's basically telling me that I will more than likely be right compared to you. He because just said of, yes and no. Because of the smaller sample. No, because he's talking about yes and no on a 30 shot sample size. I'm talking about 10 shot sample size. The odds of the 10, 10 shots shot, being different are much you bigger. To see it be different. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. But some of that is due to the nature of the sample size, not a biased swinging shift of the barrel's location due to heat. Are we talking, if we're shocking 1.5, we shoot 10 shots and it's a 1.5 cone, 1.5 MOA cone. Are we talking? You're not going to talk your way out of this. Quarter, <laughs> quarter minute zero shift. Or are we talking <laughs> a minute zero shift? It doesn't even matter if it's it a quarter minute. If it's a click. If it it's a click, it's enough. The fucking scope can't hold that. If it's a click, it's enough. Oh, debate goes on, boys. The debate goes on. I'm talking 10, 30. He said irrelevant. I got to go. James probably, probably correct. He basically but, just said even at th a 30 shot zero. Yeah. That they can yes and no be different on a 30 shot zero it, hot to cold. I've seen That's it. what he I've said. I've done it. I've done multiple with with I've done it a bunch of times and it totally depends. Have and I seen totally it depends. Yeah, but basically what and he's saying from that point yes. that a 10 shot zero either way is more statistically likely to be different than the 30 shot would. So if and, he's seen a difference oh, in a 30 shot difference, you are definitely gonna see a difference in a 10 shot group. How much do you usually see? A lot oh, oh, it depends. A lot of times when we see it, we see it with a button barrel that hasn't been properly stress relief because as that thing starts mm -hmm. to heat up, those, those stresses are changing in the way they you know react, as you could say. Um, we've a hundred percent seen that. I mean, we had that with a, uh, there was a, a hunting rifle that Jason Hornady had. Seth, I think you were still working with me when that came down. It was a six, five PRC. Mm. And if you did cold boards, that thing hammered, it was awesome. If you got over about five or six shots, it started walking. It was a it was a linear string of shots, and we repeated. Mm. Do you remember that, Seth? I do. Yeah, I won't mention the firearm brand, but I know exactly the right. <laughs> Come on, Seth, that's not fun. We've definitely seen that, and obviously, that you know, when we had Form on here talking about the ten mm -hmm. shot and the thirty shot groups, basically, he said if that happens, he does an initial ten hot shots in a row, like he just gets the rifle, he puts ten shots through it, hot right after another, and if he sees anything like that, like like vertical stringing, mm -hmm. sideways stringing as it heats up then he, that tells him immediately yep. there's something wrong and not even to pursue yeah. moving forward with that rifle because that should not be the case. Yep. So you kind of just stop there. But I'll, real quick, when you guys, you know, within the Hornady group of guys that shoot competition and whatnot, do you guys have a gunsmith that you normally go to in the area? Do you do your own chamber in? Does somebody there do chamber in or all different for you guys? We pretty or much do it all in-house. 
Yeah, we oh, do yeah. it all in-house. Okay, nice. I don't know of anybody here that shoots as much as we do or as within the group that shoots. I don't know a single person who has a barrel chambered outside of these four walls. Hmm, nice. Is there one well, person in particular do that's, or, that's doing it there? Oh, we've, we've got a legend. He doesn't do much for okay. like our, the, the PRS NRL hunter group. I mean, he does some stuff for us. Uh, he's been here since 1974. He oh, interviewed wow. with Joyce Hornady himself. Wow. Uh, he's the most gifted machinist, craftsman, woodworker, concrete pourer. I mean, he is <laughs> just um, a man among boys. Uh, he chambers all of our uh, bench rest guns for our bench rest team. Uh, he does a bunch of chamber work for our accuracy lab, and he is he is a world class uh, craftsman. Nice. This man has made his own bipod out of titanium. He's made. I mean, if if you can dream it, this guy can do it. He doesn't do a ton for us on the large scale simply because so many of us are shooting out barrels so rapidly. Uh, and, and to be quite honest with you, a lot on a uh, CNC lathe. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Not not to go back to the debate, but do you see the button rifle versus cut? You see the buttons walking more than the cut. Is that Jaden? What are you seeing? Yeah, I would say in general, you could you could say that. Yeah. Okay. Are we moving on to a new topic now? Because that new, one's squashed. You got one. You got one. I do. It's all right. Yeah, bring it. Some. All right, guys. So. Factory factory ammo versus hand loads. Now, as a company, Hornady, to me, kind of promotes both, right? Because you, you guys have an entire line of reloading gear, and then you also sell factory ammo. So in, in your opinion, factory ammo versus hand loads, what are the limitations of each? Um, the limitations of ammo is that you know, you, you get what you get. Uh, you don't get to pick the powder. You don't get to pick the charger. I'm talking the consumer, right? Um, the the benefits is of hand loading or reloading is is controllability in each of the processes. You know, you get to decide what powder and how much and where to seat the bullet and all that kind of stuff. I would reiterate Seth's point that the modern cartridges cartridge designs that you've seen with like the Creed Mortars, the Arcs, the PRC line of cartridges, they they make the benefits of hand loading or reloading a little than some of the legacy cartridges. Um, many a times I've taken a, a 30 out six or a 270 and, and my hand loads or reloads will well outshoot factory ammo because I'm able to, to match, you know, the correct set of circumstances that that barrel seems to like and produce a good result. Um, but I would say with, with the newer stuff, you know, we used to publish the load on the 6.5 Creedmoor 140 AMAX ammunition um, as as kind of like a challenge to the consumer. Like, hey, here's the load. See if you can do better than that. Um, so that would be the main differences from from my standpoint. Seth, what do you think? Yeah. What, I mean, what about what about precision? You know, like as far as machinery limitations versus you know single press. Oh yeah. Zero press. So just in in powder charge variation um, and miles has done and Jaden has done significant testing on powder charge variation and it's uh, implication to dispersion and mileage varies obviously. Uh, but in your ability to hold it, whether it's beneficial or not, your ability to hold powder charge variations when you're hand loading is literally to the kernel versus an ammo uh, production facility that we have on the scale that we have. You just simply can't hold that tight of a tolerance on, powder charge variation. Mm -hmm. 
During uh, during COVID, during all the big powder shortages, did you guys were you forced to change some loads around due to powder availability? Yeah, we always try to have um, alternate options available. Uh, so when we like back when you were asking me about developing like a seven, you know, PRC load and two different powders or whatever, mm-hmm. we'll generally try to have a primary and an alternate available because. You know, it's a it's manufacturing issues come up, whether it's supply or, or whatever it may be. Um, and so we we try to identify at least two propellants that will meet the specifications of the load for all those categories I listed. Case fill, temp, temp sensitivity, pressure and velocity, dispersion, uh, all of that stuff. Um, we try to have multiple if we can. Try, trying to keep the question, this question very general so you can kind of just do a yes or no on uh, most of the common hunting rifle cartridges that you guys load are these powders that guys could buy off the shelf and try and duplicate somehow some way or are there some custom mixes going on in there in other words can the hand loader try and duplicate what you guys are doing sometimes um we do use a lot of the what we call canister grade propellants which are stuff that you can buy at the store um hodgden alliant um, would, would be the, the majority of those probably. Uh, and then I would say a substantial amount of what we do is stuff that's not accessible to the consumer market, um, both in the, the specific propellant and then also how we utilize it. Uh, we do blend propellants, which you have to be very careful with and know what you're doing and do it correctly. And um, have pressure, piezoelectric pressure reading equipment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That goes back to you guys trying to hit a pressure to velocity versus... Yeah. Okay. Go ahead, Ryan. All right. Back to me. Yeah, back, back to, to you. Back to you. All right. This is another question I hear a lot, myth or fact. When you have a cartridge that shoots a projectile over 3,100 feet per second, do you guys find that it shoots more flyers, you know, out or farther out of the cone of like dispersion or not? Weird physics. Yeah, weird. Like you'll have like a one that's shooting a 1.5 inch group. And then all of a sudden you have 3,100, you're shooting a 2.5. Um, not necessarily, uh, you know, just, just looking at raw velocity and it's hard to ignore what a 22, 250 can do well north of 3000 foot a second, you know, um, I, I would say it's necessarily a function of just raw velocity there's a lot of other things that are contributing there well another part of that question ryan might be when you guys designed the 7 prc cartridge Jaden, i imagine you had some part of that are you guys do you guys have a minimum and maximum velocity you're trying to design that cartridge to shoot a certain bullet in between in other words is it 2800 to 3000 is the or 2900 to 3000 is the ideal velocity for this new cartridge uh, that you're trying to make yeah, so velocity has a couple different uh, things to consider when selecting it. Um, one is the you know the the velocity range that the projectile was designed to operate at. So for a hunting bullet, you know we're we're concerned with making sure the bullet expands and works as designed. Um, so you generally have a maximum velocity where if you go above that, the bullet hold together as designed and expand in a controlled manner like it's supposed to. And if you if you go below that velocity, the bullet no longer opens or expands like it's supposed to. Mm. And so that's really your most broad selection point is what velocity does this bullet need to have to work? Um, that kind of gets defined by how is it going to be used? Is it an ELDX where 
that bullet is capable of um, working at 50 yards and seven or 800 yards. If that's the case, then you need to be picking muzzle velocities that sustain an impact velocity at the back end of that window that are sufficient to get it to expand. What is the minimum um, expansion velocity on an ELDX? 1,600 feet per second. And then does the RPMs factor into that? Like, I, I don't know if it's you guys as a 300,000 RPM um, statistic out there, but if you're shooting 3,500 yeah. feet per second, you want to keep it under 300,000 RPMs, correct? You kind of want to keep any bullet under 300,000. Um, that's just generally good practice. Um, but that's not a huge, you know, that, that's kind of by default, uh, you know, that's a combination of the velocity and the twist rate. So Correct. you're you're more heavily weighing your velocity decision on making sure the bullet can still work. And then the, the other, the second aspect that we look at from a velocity standpoint is, you know, recoil, shootability, uh, ability to spot your own shot consideration, right? You can have that thing screaming fast as a laser beam, um, but the recoil is so obnoxious that nobody wants to shoot it. It's kind of a moot point. And I would say in general, you see kind of a sweet spot exists between that 27 and 2900 feet per second, plus or minus some there, where you have a good balance point of being able to, to see the, the bullet splash on a miss or even an impact. Um, things are just quite manageable in that range when it comes to say hunting cartridges. Not that going above them is bad necessarily, but those are the trade-offs that exist. What what is your guys' uh, velocity range for your posted BCs on the on the box of bullets? Like if it says it's a six ninety one G one BC, is there an average range of bullet velocity that generates that number? So that's derived at Mach two point two five. Two point two. So Mach number is a combination of velocity and temperature. Okay. So species change with temperature. Yeah. So in general, that's about 25, uh, 25, 20 foot per second. I think off the top of my head is a general associated velocity there. 25, 20, like at room temp. Yeah. At an ambient. So 59 degrees Fahrenheit. Interesting. If you go to the, the Googleizer and you type in Hornady ballistic coefficient, we have a landing page produces where we list all ELDX, ELD mash, and ATIP bullets at Mach 2 and a quarter, like Jaden's been talking about, which is the box advertised velocity. And we also publish Mach 2 and Mach 1.75 BCs. Wow, so the so the fastest velocity you supply a BC for is 2520 at that 59 Fahrenheit? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, for example, if a guy was shooting a 28 Nosler, uh, 175 ELDX, moving at 3250 feet per second, and he's out there truing and doping his his rifle out, would you guys recommend? Because there would be some BC, obviously, it'd have a much better BC than 25 20 feet per second. Do you recommend that 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 shooter improves the BC before he starts to adjust velocity? I'd recommend he doesn't use BC at all. So, for the the guy that's not using Ford off, then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Say, there are there are other calculators that guys are using. <laughs> I would I would recommend he uses the BC derived at a mock value where the bullet is spending the majority of its time. So if mm -hmm. he's planning on shooting two one thousand yards, the bullet's gonna take 
longer to get between 500 and 1,000 yards than it is between zero and 500 yards. So I've used a BC value calculated at the mock regime where the bullet's going to spend the most time of flight. Yeah, but that, I mean, describing it that way is not the average guy is not yeah. going to understand or be able to make that calculation himself anyway. I'm just trying to make a very average generalized point that the side of the box BC oh, sure. is a 2,500 yeah, feet per second velocity, right? So this guy, he pulls your 28 nozzle 175 ELDX ammo out and it's doing 3,200 out of his 28 inch barrel. Now, when mm-hmm. you're doping your rifle out and, you know, if he's shooting at a thousand yards, for example, there, there may be a significant BC change between 2,500 feet per second and 3,200. And he's unable to there make that be. calculation there's, himself. Yeah, there's going to be uh, velocity-based uh, or mock value-based BC changes. There's probably going to be a change in that bullet and his twist rate if he's not running uh, a factory Sammy twist rate as a 1 or 9 in 28 nozzler. So it could be a bunch of things working against him. Mm-hmm. So how would a guy like that go about making that BC adjustment or figuring out what the right number would be first, rather than just adjusting velocity to match his, you know, in other words, if if, if the bullet's going 3,200, leaving the muzzle, and now he has to adjust his velocity down to 3,100 to match the hit he made at 1,000 yards because the BC was was off. You know, how does a guy like that yeah, that's figure a, out that change? That's a That's a bad idea. I... I always recommend to people, if you have a good velocity number, meaning you've, you've derived it from your gun uh, with a you know reliable method, a lab radar, a magneto speed, mm-hmm. some sort of chronograph, like an, something that's believable. If you've measured that velocity, don't change it. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing you know. That's really the only thing you know. You're already calling into question, well, what is the, what is the BC need to be to make this work? The thing that you know and you've measured is your velocity. So the only time that I would condone truing velocity is if you have absolutely no information to go off of. The point that, you know, there, there is a, a substantial difference between the advertised published BC on the side of the box at 2,500 feet per second at Mach 2.25. And There's what a 28 nozzler, you know, if you know it, I just find an interest. Most 28 nozzlers are shooting pretty hot, right? So let's just pretend it's a factory 28 inch barrel with a nine twist somewhere. Well, it's probably going to be doing 3,100 mm-hmm. feet a second. I mean, this is 600 foot per second right. difference on the advertised mm-hmm. BC on the side of the box. Yeah. And then if you tell a guy yeah. not to true velocity to go with what the, the lab writer is telling you, because it's more than likely accurate. Well, he has to change something because he just missed at a thousand yards. He's got to change something. He's, yeah. He's got to. But, and that kind of gets us in. If we continue why, the move away from BC is continuing to get further, you know, and further mm-hmm. down the road is we are as an industry better at hitting stuff far away mm-hmm. and using BCs brings with it a whole list of problems that weren't a huge deal 10 years ago, even five years ago. But our level of accuracy, again, as the average shooter shooting stuff far away, it's gotten, it's getting so much better. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't have to go finger fudge BC numbers until you get it to line up. And like mm-hmm. Jaden was saying before he, we lost him, you, 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 you true that for an environment and we know BCs change with velocity and they change with temperature. So if you true everything up and you true your muzzle velocity and you true your BC and then the temperature changes significantly, so does the drag of your bullet. And so now you're going to have to redo all of that stuff again. Well, most and, of your uh, ballistic calculators have problems. Most of your ballistic calculators have temperature inputs, DA inputs, things like mm-hmm. that. Those are supposed to 
compensate for the temperature change. You're physically putting the temperature into the calculator and it's using mm -hmm. it as a, as a, as a variable input. And we, we right. and they will work better than doing nothing, but they are still estimations. And we did a podcast with a guy and he talked about how much it changed and how drastically you had to change your BC. So I was dicking around with applied ballistic Kestrel and you do have to change that BC significantly, let's say at 800 yards to miss a deer or an elk mm -hmm. if you're validated. So a lot of people dick with things. And I think it comes back to they're probably not zero, like Jaden said in the podcast. They're, zero is probably not spot on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of things. Your muzzle velocity, your zero aerodynamic jump, uh, and BC calculators regardless of the calculator out there can't accurately calculate things like aerodynamic jump and spin drift. Uh, and yeah, there's just a lot of things that can stack up on each other. I don't know how we hit anything, Seth. <laughs> you wanna, <laughs> Seth, do you want to try to add him back I mean. in? Like, yeah. And before I do that, like five, 10 years ago, it really didn't matter because we were hitting what we were aiming at. And now we're just at a point at, as an industry, not as a Hornady, but as an industry where people are willing to shoot the 10, the 20, the 30 shot groups. And they're really flushing out what it means to shoot something far away with first level precision. And there's just a lot more variables. It does make you wonder, like, how was, yeah, how was, how was younger Seth hitting stuff far away with any reasonable accuracy? But all right, guys, if you hold on one minute, I'll get Jaden added back on here. This is tangential to what we're talking about, but it's it's kind of a, a nice nice thing, you know. I, I go out where I live on my little acreage, and I don't get cell phone service inside my house, so it's kind of like a little, you know, seclusion kind of deal. Yeah, I remember you say you like uh, to I, live in the woods. Is there on, is there on. any thoughts on a hundred and twenty ish six millimeter bullets coming from Hornady? You could have just made it like a Ryan, more generalized. Sorry. Are we going to come? Are you going to come up with a bigger six right. mil yeah, bullet we, we at some point a, in life? We built a six UM. We need a bigger six mil bullet. A bigger six millimeter. Sorry, I missed part of that question because I was adding Jaden. Oh, hundred. He uh, is now not on here, but you need a bigger hunting bullet in six millimeter. Uh, oh, you don't got to say the word hunting. It could be a match bullet. We hunt with all kinds of bullets. It could be an ELDM, <laughs> ELDX. We like to say, I should say what? Dione likes to say ELDM should yeah. stand for murder, not match. Uh, if, if that's a requirement, I think there is room uh, to, uh, in, to expand the six millimeter line. One, I went on to expand on what you were saying about the temperature dependency for uh, BC. You mentioned that BC programs as a whole can't accurately calculate aerodynamic jump and spin drift and that you start getting tolerance stacking on what that program can't do. And if you have a zero problem in there, uh, it's amazing we hit anything at all. And then uh, we're now we're talking about these guys are really in need for a badass, super heavy six millimeter bullet. I'll let these guys take it from there. Yes. Are you working on a big six mil bullet, Jaden? Like how big? 120. Like 120 plus. It can be bigger than that, but bigger than 120. Mm, yeah, that's kind of lightweight. I was shooting oh! for 200. <laughs> 200. He said 200. <laughs> he said, he said Rod, Roddy Coleman, lightweight, baby. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We don't shoot nothing but, but spaghetti, you know? Oh, nice. Damn. Nice. It could fall out the end of the barrel. It'll be yeah. all right. Need a two twist. Yeah. That, it can that, touch the target without leaving the muzzle. 
<laughs> well, it make uh, yeah, it'll definitely make power factor. Nice. Um, is that a possibility? You know, a 120 ELDM, ELDX, either way. Mm, I don't know. I'd have to look at a bunch of stuff, but I'm guessing you're 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 pushing limits. Uh, you're pushing limits fairly hard there. I don't know. I'd have to look at it. Maybe a 115. One thing that you'd be up against, Ryan, is you want that bullet to be able to hold together mm -hmm. at high velocity, high fast twist rate, so high RPMs. You're going to have to make that jacket just hell for stout thick. Mm -hmm. And then weight is dictated largely by the lead core. And so the thicker you make the jacket, the less lead you're going to fit in there. Mm -hmm. So it, yeah, it would be a, a balancing act. So you're saying there's a chance. Well, you could just set, you could set a new tone for twist rate, right? And just, you know, all the six dashers would be, you know, eight and a half or nine twists instead of what they were before. Yeah. Yeah. We, we built a six, we call it six UM. It's a six, five psalm neck down to six millimeter, then blown out, improved. Uh -huh. And it's shooting 24 inch barrels are shooting about 3450. With a 115. Yep. Wow. I just built a one, I just built a 16 inch, well, 16 and a half inch barrel and it's shooting 3200 with the 115 DTEC. Yeah. So the DTEC has its limitations as far as it's a hard bullet. It's hard on deer. It's great for elk. But if we could, you know, we always, we just joked, Dione came up with the name, but if we had an ELDM, which is your match, but it should stand for murder. <laughs> if we had one of those, <laughs> oh, that would be sexy. Just something to think about, you know. When uh, I'll, I'll uh, play with it, my friend. Nice. When a, when a random customer calls and says, "Hey, Jaden, can I use that ELDM bullet to kill a deer with?" What is your guys's Hornady approved response for that? Uh, that bullet was not designed uh, for terminal performance. We we are aware uh, that people use them for that, and our standpoint would be mileage may vary. Like we didn't design it to do that, so if you're going to do that with it, we can't guarantee what happens. Mm. Let me rephrase the question. Oh shit! Has Jaden or Seth? Oh, that was my next question. Yeah. Ever used a match bullet for big game hunting? You tell no stories now. I'll be honest. With you Crickets. Guys, I certainly have. There you go. Yes. No. I'll, I think especially when I was working as a ballistician, I looked at it as a, as a, like, I can't talk about this unless I see what this is doing and how this performs. Cause we know everybody's doing it. And Nebraska has a great opportunity with uh, late season does, excuse me, in the month of January. So all the crops are harvested and sometimes you'll have over a hundred deer per section. So you have an obligation to thin that herd down. Uh, just unsustainable and that's uh, some of my experience with match bullets with hunting uh, and then the other stuff anecdotal uh, that I haven't done is boattail hollow points for big game hunting I've been scared off from those from early days of not shooting them but just seeing bad things happen or inconsistent things happen that I have personally never never done that hmm. we've killed a lot of stuff yeah, with 215 burger a... hybrids too and that's a boat tail hollow point. Jaden, how about you? I've never taken a, a big game animal uh, with a match bullet, but I've done a ton of smaller game stuff. So like maybe some invasive species type things and then like pigs and stuff like that. Um, so I've, I've certainly tested and, and observed the, the terminal performance of the EM bullets, but I have never, I've never been on a big game hunt where I used it. I always use the ELDF. 
I'm just going to, from my opinion, I've, I'm in the hundreds between ELDMs. Go back to your, the AMAX burger target, not the VLDs. And then I have a group of probably it's in the thousands, if not in the 10,000s with match bullets. And I have seen far weirder things from monos and, you know, bonded bullets than I ever have from your guys's match bullets. So I find it interesting that people still argue that. And I know you guys have to say what you guys have to say, but I've seen the exact opposite of what I keep hearing. I think to, to speak to what you're saying, Ryan, I think anytime you have a traditionally drawn cup and core bullet mm -hmm. with a polymer tip, you're going to see very consistent performance uh, on the larger scale. It's, it's on the fringes where that's going to be a problem. Gotcha. So you start looking at bonded bullets that are hyper soft, right? Because you have to add mm -hmm. heat to essentially weld that jacket to the core. So you get weird lead displacement and then everything's soft because you heated it. Uh, and then monolithic bullets, they just require so much impact velocity to work properly. I can see if you're pushing things to the, the limits as far as distances or impact velocities go, things could definitely get squirrely with those latter two. Hmm. We know a lot of guys Imagine. that are killing killing with the M bullets more than the X, that's for sure. You guys, so you're not going to go with that I'm, marketing, the murder bullet? You're not going to do that? ELD, <laughs> the ELD murder <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that would go over well, you know. And run it by like Jason. You, mentioned, you know, yeah, I'll run it by. But, uh, I think, I think Jason. I've heard Jason say this. Like we make the X bullet to do what we want it to do, which is every practical distance, and we'll leave you to decide what practical is uh, to get you to use the accuracy and the terminal performance at those extended practical ranges, but also at the close ranges and. That's typically where we have had reported that the ELD match bullet fails is at those moderate and close range uh, shoulder shot kind of scenarios. Mm -hmm. Explosive performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fair enough. I appreciate the frankness. If uh, if somebody wanted Hornady to make a new bullet, what what would it take to get the job done? Money money wise, quantity wise. Obviously, if the bullet worked for you and it made sense to make it, what does it take to get something like that done? I would say at this point, Jaden, you could add on what you think, but in my opinion, uh, working closely now that I'm in the marketing world, uh, we do a lot with sales. It's really not a money or quantity thing at this point. Uh, it, it just, it has to be a really good idea that will sell in volume. So, mm. you know, some people have called, this is a real life example, the 318 Webby Richard. Uh, Swift stopped making their bullet or whatever brand it was, stopped making the one bullet that was really useful for that cartridge. And like, we just can't justify doing a bullet like that. It's a good, yeah, it's a good idea. But from the volume standpoint, there's only so many hours a day. And we have to fill that up with bullets that are, that people actually want mm. or large amounts of people actually want them. And uh, so I, at this point, it's really not a, a money or volume thing. It's, is this good on, you know, countrywide scale availability? I think. Mm -hmm. Copy yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I'd, I'd say you don't know until you ask. You know. Mm -hmm. I agree. Hit it, Ryan. All right. A couple of questions from the rock slide. We have a guy that he's in that tent. He's in your podcast forum thread all the time and. 
he makes this statement, and Jaden said, either one, this one's your answer. He says, a 10-round group does not give a better zero compared to a five-round group. That's his statement several times. So, you know, I know that's pretty generic, and you only see him part of the, the context, but that's pretty much the context. What's your guys' answer? Kick this one to Jaden. I don't know if he's looking at any actual numbers, but I know Jaden has done the calculations on the average, what I'm going to call shift from like whatever it was, five, five shot groups versus one 50 shot group. And what that means to downrange trajectory. If you told your ballistic calculator, you were actually zeroed at X range or whatever. So I'll, I'll leave that one to Jaden. Yeah. I mean, uh, they're, can, can a five-shot group be as accurate at establishing the true mean point of impact of the cone of fire of the dispersion of the rifle as a 10? Yes, it's possible for that to occur. Are the chances of it higher with a five-shot than a 10-shot? Absolutely not. The more, the larger the sample size is, the more stable the average becomes. And so, no, and that's an easy one to prove to yourself. Go shoot a couple different five shot groups and see how the mean point of impact moves when nothing else changed. And then go do it with tens and see how much the mean point of impact moves. Every time I've done that, the 10 shot mean point of impacts move less than the five shots do. And the five shotters are better than the three shotters. I mean, it, 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 it follows the statistical the statistical nature of a random placement of the shot, which is what a gun is. A gun is a random number generator. I never heard that before. A random gen, random number generator. Uh huh. Huh. Interesting. Random number generating paper hole punch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, like, it's like the ping pong balls in the rotating, you know, bingo machine or whatever. Hmm. I mean, there's some there's some direction to it obviously right there's some but but there's a randomized nature to dispersion um because it it's only randomized due to lack of knowledge or information from the shooter if you knew the orientation of any manufacturer defect and you knew the bullets shape orientation or positioning with arrow at the point at muzzle exit you can predict where it goes that randomized nature goes away but those two things are unknown to you. And so they produce a random result. I mean, can you, uh, here's a game we play internally to prove that. Uh, a lot of times you have people that uh, will say they can call their shots, right? Like, oh, I can tell that one's uh, high or that one's lower, right or left or whatever. And so you can, um, but but we do tests with that where the the spotter can observe the target and the shooter can't. Um, and the shooter just makes his call. Where did that one go? And we've found 10% is about how right you are. That's the average hmm. uh, across a bunch of different shooters of varying capabilities to include high level capabilities. It's about 10% of the time that when you say, yep, that one's going high, it actually goes high or orientation. Out. Now, if you, now, if it's obvious, right? Like the shot broke there, right? You're shooting uh, offhand and the, and the point of aim wobbling all about. That, that's way more valid than kind of the time, but laying prone with a, with a very stable position, 
we see that it's about a 10% that you're right. <laughs> Meaning it's probably completely random. Well, well, this kind of piggybacks on the question. And this was said to Jaden, but Seth, I want to hear your thoughts on it too. You get a new rifle, zero to 800 yards on an elk hunt. What cartridge are you picking and what would be your validation process? I would do 7PRC. I was just going to tell you, you should have told them they can't pick a hoardy cartridge. (laughs) (laughs) No, sorry. Go ahead, Seth. (laughs) Uh, Honestly, like uh, when I was working on that cartridge, that was the goal was elk to a half a mile and everything closer. That was the goal. And that's, that really fits that, that bill really nicely. So it'd be 175 ELDX and seven millimeter PRC. And I would shoot probably a 12 or 15 shot zero doing three shots and then letting it cool. Uh, I'd set up a zero angle using Ford off. And then I would go out to our range here and run that sucker out to 1500 yards and back on every free Saturday morning that I could get in varying wind conditions and, uh, and go hunting with confidence. That's what I did last season when I, it was the first season I hunted with the seven PRC. And that's kind of just what, what I personally like to do. We talked about it earlier with zeroing. I like to do a three, maybe five shot, uh, group. And I'll let that barrel cool. And then I'll put whatever a good number is, whether that be, if I'm shooting threes, 12 DZ, 15 DZ, um, on a match rifle, I usually do 20s, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's how I would do it. Jaden. Um, fairly similar to Seth, I would do, I go with the 300 PRC or the seven PRC. Um, I I've lived this circumstance you're asking about, um, for, for many years now, I grew up in Colorado. So I go back and, and hunt there whenever I draw an elk tag, uh, with the, the guy that taught me how to hunt growing up. I'll be doing that uh, here starting November. I drew my elk tag this year. I'm probably going to go with the seven PRC, and and what I'll do is since you know That's hunting right, season, Jamie. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> since, uh, since hunting season is usually in the fall, uh, what I'll do is probably mid October. So this is you know two or three weeks out from my hunt. Here in the interim, between now and October, um, I'll do some different testing. You know, I'll shoot some factory stuff. I might hand load some. stuff to see what what's better dispersion wise what what shoots better with the rifle once i've established the load use uh then about mid-october i have a 100 yard range at my house um nothing further i'll i'll take the rifle out to my shed which is not climate controlled or anything and i'll leave it out there with the ammo all night uh, and i'll come out first thing in the morning i'll shoot three like Seth is saying, the reason I do three is because like you guys said, I'm going to take a cold bore shot with hunting. And if I screw something up, I might have a follow-up and maybe another follow-up. So I'm, I'm testing the rifle the way I'm going to use it. So I'll shoot some prone. Uh, I might shoot some, so I generally hunt with like the, the, there was it like a nine to 20 something, the Harris that you can shoot like prone, but also extends oh. out. So you can shoot like Indian style mm-hmm. or, seated or whatever. Yeah. So I'll, I'll shoot some, some three shot sets, uh, prone. I'll shoot some three shot sets, like sitting with that bipod. I'll shoot some off a tripod. I might shoot some off of a bag, you know, my, my, my rucksack, uh, as a rest. Uh, obviously I let the rifle cool down completely so that I'm returning back to that cold bore state for every one of those. I do a minimum of seven times to reach a sample size of 21. 
And uh, then I build, like Seth said, I build my Ford off file off of that. Uh, I'll generally try to go go do some long range practice stuff, like Seth said. Um, just get trying to get uh, an understanding of how quickly can I return uh, return from recoil based on a specific shooting position to be able to see that bullet impact. You know, what ranges am I going to be able to achieve that at? Um, just because I like I like to know that because. If I'm in a hunting situation and it's a 300 yard shot and I'm shooting off a tree branch where I'm very unstable, I'm probably not going to be able to see where that shot hit. And so I'm really going to try to maybe take the shot where the animal's in a position where if a follow-up's necessary, I've kind of stacked the deck in my favor. Um, maybe it's a little bit of a longer range shot where I can easily return back onto the rifle. I just, I'm, I'm going to use it like I'm going to hunt with it so that I'm familiar with what's going to happen. So any cho choices I have at my disposal prior to take a shot, I can try to pick the best of them to, to stack odds in my, in my success. Gotcha. That's a lot of thinking right in the middle of buck fever. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But you know, I mean, you, you owe that to yourself and the animal. Hmm. Um, I, I think if you just haphazardly go out and, you know, go on a hunt and you wound an animal, uh, I personally believe you're responsible for that. And, and that's not just your experience, but that experience reflects the hunting community at large. And I think we owe it to ourselves, the animal and every other hunter to do it right because our reputation is on the line to an extent, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Well, fair enough. Uh, Seth, you got me thinking about the zero angle forward off thing. When I was first, I did a bunch yeah. of reading about it. I was like, man, what a bunch of bullshit. But you sell it to me, explain it to us, because I don't get it. But I'm pretty, so, I'm, I'm kind of simple. So Yeah. So what has historically been done, and Jaden will expand on what I say. I'll, I'll keep it at the high school level. and Jaden will give us the doctorate explanation. But traditionally, we've used zero range, right? Where your bullet crosses your line of sight, that's where it impacts. And that's what you tell the computer. Well, it is only that that range is only the quote unquote zero range for that arbitrary set of conditions that you're shooting in the temperature and largely the wind speed and direction because aerodynamic jump and a headed headwind and tailwind affect the bullet's location as close as 100 yards, which is where a lot of us like to zero rifles. So if you tell your ballistic calculator that you have a 100 yard zero, it force fits every calculation based on that 100 yard zero. But what if it's not? What if it's 112? What if it's 92? What if it's 137 yards, right? If it's less than a, let's say you got a, a minute scope. If it's less than a quarter of a minute off of zero, is that a problem? And zero angle uh, accounts for that. And I'll explain that here in just a minute. But I know Jaden, it's getting close to 1 p.m. Central time. And Jaden's got an important meeting he's got to go to. So mm -hmm. I'll let him sign off here real quick. Yeah, I hey, appreciate you guys having me. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Yes, thanks a the, lot. The zero, the the in depth zero angle uh, description might take a little bit longer than the the couple minutes I have, but um, you're essentially finding the angle at which the the bullet is going to be launched at, and that's what defines where it goes. Um, zero range is kind of an arbitrary uh, point down range where the bullet crosses the line of sight but the bullet's trajectory changes based on a bunch of different conditions that are 
outside of you and your rifle's control, right? Environmental conditions. And so if it changes the trajectory, it's going to change where it impacts. And if it changed where it impacts at your zero distance, it's technically not zeroed anymore. Um, so we, we, we decided to incorporate the zero angle feature, which is how it actually works. Uh, and that way you're not, you're not sensitive to any environmental changes or anything like that. Um, all of the ballistic predictions will be done uh, correctly based on a launch angle of your barrel. If that's a quick, quick uh, uh, rundown. And I can, I can expand on that just a little bit more when, uh, like I said, I know Jaden has to leave and we can drill down some of those points. Jaden, we really appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Absolutely, guys. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Seth, I think maybe the general consensus yeah. on the the bullet angle in between zero and 100 yards when most guys are zeroing at 100 is that atmospherics don't influence the bullet enough from zero to 100 to account for in your zero. That would be yeah. the general consensus. Do. I would agree. Yeah, the general consensus is that they don't. You get to your three or five or even a 10-shot 100-yard zero, and Maybe you're exactly 100 yards. Maybe you're not. Regardless of what you are, if there is any wind present at all, um, it, it doesn't know that, right? The calculator doesn't know that. And aerodynamic jump is measurable at distances much closer than 100 yards, but certainly at 100 yards. And no other calculator out there uh, that, that uses ballistic coefficient can account for that. Even those calculators that have what they would call atmospheric zero, they do not know the exact mass layout of the bullet. They might know your bullet length, but they do not know the mass layout. And that dictates the center of gravity and the center of pressure, pressure relationship. And that is, you have to know those to calculate aerodynamic jump. You have to know some pitching moment coefficients. You have to know some inertial properties of the bullet to accurately calculate aerodynamic jump. So if you only know barrel bullet length, you can get an empirical formula and put it into a calculator, but it's oftentimes overstated uh, or understated and not very useful. So that, like Jaden said, you lock in that angle that your barrel is pointed at relative to your line of sight that achieves this shot location based on this specific environment. So say the aerodynamic jump actually has you at 98 yards, not the 100 you put in for the zero range. How much does that affect it at, say, 800 yards? Probably not huge. Uh, I, we could run those numbers and find out. It's, it's probably not that large. But the argument, is, at least for me, is you have a controllable variable that you're not controlling. You have an ability to rule out some error, but you're leaving that error in on purpose. You're purposefully selecting there to be more error if you don't account for it, right? So even if it's only a couple of inches, let's say, at 800 yards, should you have accounted for it? I think you should. Um, and in the hunting world, that's one thing. Uh, in the target world, ELR type competitions, where you're really trying for that first round impact past a half a mile, <clears throat> that's where zero angle really shines. What's the correct way to input that zero angle? Well, you got to so use a four a directions, to do it. four directions right. of fire. Yeah. I've done it. So there's a couple. Uh, ways to do it. Uh, we outlined this on our podcast episodes 49 and 51. We walked through it. Uh, but the easiest way now is with uh, the group analysis feature that we have on Ford Off, which is obviously a shameless plug. Uh, but if 
you guys have used uh, like Ballistic X to take a picture of your group and you can measure, you know, group and radius and, mm-hmm. and how big the group was and stuff. Yeah. We have a feature very similar to that in Fordoff now. So you can input all of your shot parameters based on your environment, take a picture of the group, plot out the point of aim, and then select your points of impact. And it will automatically calculate the launch angle that was required to produce that group center, uh, excuse me, that group mean point of impact in relation to where your point of aim was. It'll calculate that. You said you have to, you have to input wind and whatnot in, into that calculation also? Yes. Okay. Yep. You, very, that's hypercritical because, uh, again, wind, among other things, obviously the temperature will affect it. Uh, humidity right. may be at a very, very minute level, but the big one is the wind speed and direction. Interesting. All right. Maybe it's not bullshit. But you can do I'll take that it without back. The, you, could, you can do it without the group analysis feature, just in basic board off. There is, if you are in your building your rifle profile and you're at the zero range, you can toggle it over to zero angle. And there is a find zero angle button where basically you'll put in how many shots you shot and where they landed in relation to your point of aim. Uh, I recommend using a micrometer, not a micrometer, excuse me, a dial caliper to measure as accurately as you can, you know, to a tenth or a thousandth, uh, not a tenth of a thousandth, excuse me, but a hundredth or a thousandth uh, to where your shot was in relation to the zero, left, right, up, down. Gotcha. And you can do it manually that way. And that's free of charge on our free app. The group analysis feature, you take a picture of it. That's a paid feature. I think it's a couple bucks. Does do you guys have anything online like a blog post about how to make it all work on your website? Um, not a blog post. We have those two podcasts. Okay, forty nine and fifty one. Type in Hornady, uh, Hornady zero angle. There's a video of me actually uh, from when I was still working in ballistics. Uh, it's like an eight minute video, or maybe a no, excuse me, it's like a thirty minute video, and it's called "How to Set Up Your Rifle Profile." Um. Okay. It, it's been up on the internet now for a couple of years, and I walk you through the method of setting up your zero angle manually. Is that how long Ford Off has been out? A couple of years. Uh, we started playing with Ford Off in 2015 or 16, and the app came out in probably 2017 or 18. Okay. Uh, it's been out for a while. We. We didn't make a huge jump up and down, look at us kind of marketing splash with it, uh, at least initially, just because it, we've never developed an app before and there's some kinks to work out. But we're at a point now where uh, it's the user interface is great. It's, it's easy to use. And most importantly, it's accurate. And uh, uh, it's, again, free of charge. You know, there are a couple paid features in there, but to just use the calculator, we've got bullets in there from Hornady, Burger, Sierra, Nosler, Warner Tool, Vapor Trail. I mean, we've got a bunch of bullets in there. We're always adding more bullets to the program, uh, and it's free of charge. Gotcha. Um, last thing I got is you guys look like you're pretty much uh, catching up when I go to the local sporting goods store. Is there anything out there that you guys haven't it, caught up on? Um, I'm sure there is. Uh, we have caught up quite a bit, and largely that's thanks to Jason and Steve Hornady having very good strategic vision. We have added hundreds of thousands of square feet of manufacturing space since 2018, um, machines, personnel, and they, they, they've done a lot of things. And then on the engineering side, 
just some controls and and the way we've engineered out some recurrent problems that are now not problems anymore. It's really increased production and lowered scrap rate, especially on cartridge cases, which was one of our biggest choke points was how much, how many cases can we make to feed our ammo plant? Mm. And I'm sure there's stuff what we haven't completely caught up on. Um, but you know, the heavy hitters, the pipe hitters out there, the 308, 708, 243, the PRCs, the Creedmoors, the ARCs, uh, that those kind of things that we've done a job on getting caught up. And I think now you'll see us start to fill some of those existing back orders on those cartridges that are popular regionally, you know, like the 28 nozzler is a good example, the 280 Ackley, popular cartridges in the West, but not necessarily countrywide. Um, so hopefully uh, things continue to get better. Next election cycle will tell. <laughs> yeah. Anything else? Yeah, there was a, when you guys were coming out with the 7PRC before you announced it, you guys sent out some type of kits or information to a variety of gun builders in the country. Yes, How? and you were not on that list, but I didn't know you at that time. Okay, so it's a who you know thing. Yeah, well, and I tried to do a good job with that because that was my baby. I tried to do a good job of getting everybody that was practical, and to be honest with you, I didn't know anybody at Unknown Munitions. I didn't know you guys built guns at the time, so shame on me for not doing better homework. But It's all your fault, Seth. (laughs) Yeah. You got to keep an eye on every gun builder in the nation. <laughs> uh-huh. And, yeah. and you know, yeah. for, let's say for ammo manufacturers that may or may not have signed military contracts to produce ammunition using your components, how do, how does that person get a direct account with Hornady? Uh, it's pretty tough. Again, kind of like getting bullet uh, stuff, right? Was, uh, like you wanted a custom bullet. It's really not about the money at this point. It's just the time. So depending on who they are and how big they are, um, a lot of it still goes through distribution. The way that Hornady set up, there's very few people that actually buy direct from us. We sell almost all of our stuff through to a distributor, or a group of distributors, and then they sell it for us. Um, so that's one way is to get with a distributor. Uh, but they can reach out to us depending on who they are. Like if it's a major ammunition manufacturer, we probably already work with them. But if not, or if it's a major gun builder and they want to buy some stuff for function testing, um, they could get a hold of me. I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. I'm not always the right guy, especially for this kind of thing, but I can get you in contact with the right folks. Yeah, I was I already I already tried to do all that you're talking about. I was referring more to specifically military contract ammo manufacturers. Maybe oh, so maybe an ammo sure, so no. specifically a new ammo manufacturer that has signed a military contract using Hornady components. How would that manufacturer yeah. set up an account with you? That I would have to get you in touch with a guy named Scott Javins. Uh, they can call and ask for Scott, or I can get him connected with Scott. Scott is the product manager for all of military, and so he's got a hand in all the contracts. He's got a hand if it deals with military. Uh, you need to be talking to a guy named Scott Javins. Javins is G-A-V-E-N-S? Uh, J-A-V-I-N-S. Perfect. I-N-S. Perfect. And like I said, Hornady is a small company. Uh, uh, some folks see how much ammo we have on the shelf all over the country, all over the world, really. And they think Hornady some big, giant corporation like Remington or Winchester. And the reality is that is just not true. We're a very small company. We run very lean. A lot of people wear a lot of hats here, but because we're a small company, we know everybody here. So if 
you can't get a hold of somebody or you don't know the right contact, reach out to a contact or our front desk for that matter. And the hallway of offices is very short. Okay. Good deal. Well, we appreciate everything. Yeah, Seth, thanks for your time. Yeah. Absolutely, guys. I, you know, uh, to talk about this all day before we started recording, uh, you know, there was some jokes like, are these guys actual hunters or actual shooters? And uh, to be part of this culture and to fit in at this company, that's what you have to do. And so I could talk about this stuff all day, every day, twice on Sunday. It's literally what I do for work. It's what I do at home. It's what I do in my personal time. So I could talk hunting and shooting and cartridges and ballistics forever and ever and ever. <laughs> yeah, I I had I talked to you quite a bit when we were at the FTW. I knew you were a hunter and shooter. I obviously nobody's going to be a ballistician like Jaden and not be in the at least the shooting side. I didn't know on the hunting side. Yeah, yeah, passionate guy, long, uh, uh, long time, uh, long range shooter. Been doing it most of his life, as have I. And it's just something that is infectious. And Hornady does a really good job of keeping the culture. Uh, you know, we very selective with who we hire. And yeah, Jaden is just a super humble guy, very knowledgeable, uh, very smart, and very passionate because it's what he grew up doing and it's what he's going to do forever. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you, sir. Absolutely, guys. Yeah, thanks for having me.